This is Yudah Kohen, Britain's own Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. I'm here in Miami, joined by a good friend, comrade, Rudy Rockman. Rudy, thanks for coming on. Shalom, thank you for having me. Okay, Rudy, I want to introduce you a little bit to the listeners. If there were three things that you were to tell our listeners about yourself, what would they be? Uh, first of all, I'm a very proud Jew. Mm-hmm. That's definitely a big part of my identity. Okay. Uh, what I'd like to do in my lifetime is to be an individual that helps my generation move forward in Jewish history. Okay. Um, I can get down with that. Yeah. And I do a lot of work uh, in that field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was born in France, grew up most of my life in Miami, finished high school at 17, mm-hmm. moved to Israel, joined the army at 17, mm-hmm. uh, served in the paratroopers. When I finished school, I moved to Los Angeles and started school over there. That's where I came in touch with the anti-Israel, anti-Zionism movement on campus. What school? Uh, at UCLA. I was a student at Santa Monica College and UCLA at the same time, but my activism was based at UCLA. What were you studying? Uh, my degree is in economics and political science. Okay. Uh, and that's where I realized what was happening on the ground. Took a year off to travel Asia like a good Israeli after the army in between UCLA to the next school that I went to, which was Columbia University. And I purposely chose that school because it was listed the number one most anti-Semitic school in North America at the time. You consider it to be an anti-Semitic school? Uh, yes, I do. If, you're, if there's a strong movement uh, against the Jewish people, against Jewish rights, then that is a form of anti-Semitism, absolutely. And that's what you encountered at Columbia? That is what I encountered. I wouldn't say Columbia is the worst because I don't think it's a competition, but it's definitely one of the strongest uh, campuses with movements that seek to uh, delegitimize Jewish rights to exist and rights in general. Like Jewish national rights? Yeah. They're okay with like a Jew doing uh, Shabbat? Yeah, and there's right. also further things. There's professors that completely deny or partially deny the Holocaust, right? Mm-hmm. They'll say that the Holocaust was an exaggeration in order to come and to colonize uh, Arab lands. You know, mm-hmm. of course that's related to Israel, but it's way more than just Israel. It seems to be an attack against any form of Jewish empowerment. Mm-hmm. And if Jews are quiet and practicing privately, that's fine. But the second that they're allowed, the second that they're tried to revive elements of their culture that make them more than just a persecuted minority, then that becomes a problem. Okay. And you encountered that at Columbia? Yes. And you started a movement? Yes. So when I got there, I realized that I didn't want another group, just like every other group that, first of all, talks about accomplishments. Talks uh, about Israel's accomplishments. Right. Talks you, about, about pro Israel groups. Right. Pro Israel community wasn't satisfying you. Right. As they, it existed. As it existed, we would only, when I say we, I mean most of the, what the Jews were doing on campuses were setting up shop and creating uh, a sort of echo chamber amongst already pro Israel Jews talking about accomplishments that made them subjectively proud. What like, I mean by uh, that. Cherry tomatoes. Cherry tomatoes, waste, technology, drip irrigation, making Jews living in America proud of Israel in their way and only discussing that to make them feel safe in a place that was actually unsafe. Avoiding but the conflict. Avoiding any conversation. Completely the avoiding the, the conversation. Right. And only having the conversations they're having within the confines of Hillel. Yes. Or like, Chabad or right, their meaning own Meaning like not, not on campus with the other students. Absolutely. Not with the broader community. Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, so when I got there, I decided to create a grassroots movement, meaning mm-hmm. we were based by the students themselves and not an outside organization telling us what to do. Uh, our goals were not to push any sort of political agenda, not right wing, left wing, one state, two state. Of course, each one of us as individuals believed in things, but at this point in time, we had to create a strong base that was even able to get there to speak about Jewish identity. That was our primary goal. Uh, we also were not only for Jews. When it came to black rights, it wasn't only black people fighting for black rights. When it came to women rights, it wasn't only women fighting for women rights. 
So when it comes to Jewish rights, we should also have allies that are not Jews, as opposed to all the Jewish Israel groups of four, it was only permitted for Jews to be a part of them. That conversation was only for Jews to be had, and in Jewish circles, for Jews, period. So that's what we well, well, in their defense, I would say that the average Jewish college student who's involved with pro-Israel stuff, mm-hmm. especially at a school like Columbia, where it's like a very kind of modern Orthodox community that's mm-hmm. involved with pro-Israel, I don't want to say activism, activity on campus, a lot of them just don't have the socio-cultural comfort. They, they don't have the ability to speak to non-Jews. About political issues, it's just not part of their tool belt. It's it's just not what they know how to do. Right. I mean, they were raised in a Jewish cocoon, Jewish bubble. That I mean, I was raised in that too. I just left in ninth grade to a very, uh, you know, a public school with all sorts of diverse uh, cultures. Right. You know how to talk to other people. Yeah. And most most of the like organized Jewish community at Columbia University do not know how to speak to, especially about like contentious political issues. And that's frown upon it. Like it's, it's a, a bad thing if you go out and call out anti-Semitism. It's mm-hmm. a bad thing if you call out your professor. It's a bad thing if you make any sort of noise outside of the Jewish community that is not controlled by that Jewish community too. Why do you think that is? Uh, multi-layered. Uh, we're trying to avoid the problem. I think we've been raised with a generation that told Jewish students that the only way that you can make change is by, you know, get the good grade, let the professor say what they got to say, mm-hmm. uh, get a good job, make money and donate to APAC, and APAC will influence the change rather than the change be influenced from the ground up. And they don't even realize that the future political and intellectual class of the next generation that will one day be in politics and in media and so on come from college universities. So it's our responsibility as Jews to make sure to project our narrative. And also they want complete control. So for example, a lot, some of the Jewish organizations on campus, I'm not going to mention them, had a very big problem with an individual like me coming and bringing something new and building something that wasn't under their umbrella. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are many reasons for that. One, they want to be a, a united voice that is kept under control and doesn't make any problems because then they feel that everyone is will be blamed if any problems are caused into it's a it's a budget issue that if all of a sudden a different group is doing things then donors will start giving money to the group that's donors or the university donors uh-huh. donors will start giving money because columbia university at the end of the day um, in the jewish community is known as a very hostile campus towards jews did, and to Israel. did you find that that was happening were you taking donations away from the hillel or from the pro israel organizations that existed before you came uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say I was taking them away. I but would they were say, looking for. They're looking at say, you as the a better solution. Yes. Where they would, can better yeah. use their money, put their I, money to use. I would say that donors were frustrated with the the way that it was. The same way I was frustrated because mm-hmm. the way I see it is the 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 situation today is not caused because they're so good. It's caused mm-hmm. because we're so bad. It's our responsibility to be able to write our next chapter of history. To be able to talk about this even conversation about what it means to be Jews. And because we weren't doing anything, it has led to what it's come today. So I saw it and they saw it as finally there's something new. We're just going to place our money towards the better uh, right, sure, the better movement. Yeah, I mean, if I was giving my money somewhere, I'd want it to have of impact. Right. That makes sense. Okay, so, you know, I'm going to push back a little bit. You mentioned before that you thought it was important to create like a pro-Israel voice on campus that was not taking any position on contentious issues. Mm-hmm. That was just kind of like um, inclusive. That well, no. everyone can kind of find their, like, like regardless of what your politics are or regardless of what your positions are on certain like internal Israeli issues, like you have a place in this movement and you can fight for this collective goal of, how would you define the collective goal? 
Well, the collective goal, first and foremost, is to revive elements of our civilization that was lost, so okay. the decolonization that we both speak about long, a lot of times, uh, to empower Jews themselves to know how to defend themselves ideologically, to understand who they are internally with their identity and be able to okay. project that, and to fight against anti-Semitism, to fight against terrorism, to fight against oppression that Jews can face either in Israel or outside of Israel. Okay. Now, when it comes to one state, two state, obviously as an individual, I'm completely against uh, any form of two state solution. I believe that one, Israel is the indigenous land of the Jewish people, and if it is, it's not for us to give away. It belongs to our children. So I'm very much so against uh, two state solution. I've always aired my opinion on that. However, there were some individuals that didn't know so much and took a two state solution because that's what they were taught. And we didn't see it as functional to even talk about one state, two state, because that's not the conversation that was happening on campus, at least when I was there. The conversation on campus was, does Israel even have a right to exist? Or are the Jewish people even a people? Mm-hmm. And, all, and if they are, and now that they are existent, all these evil things are associated to them. And all the suffering of minority groups are blamed on them. That was the fight that we were dealing with. Mm-hmm. So... Well, I would say, first of all, when you look at um, any political organization on any university campus, they are fighting to make a change in the world. They're fighting to end an injustice. They're fighting to resist oppression. They're fighting to create something better. They have, like, a political goal that they're fighting, something they're trying to change in the world. A criticism I have of the pro-Israel community in general is that they seem to be fighting to defend the policies and reputation of a very specific nation state. That seems to be what they exist for. Like, we are here to defend Israel's image. And if I was on campus and I saw a group of students organizing and they were just defending the policies and reputation of South Korea, I would make the assumption that they're agents of the the South Korean state. That's how it would appear to me. And I think that's how a lot of pro-Israel advocates appear to most of the like activist community on most campuses, that they appear to be agents of the Israeli state. I think if you're going to organize on campus, the most important thing to do is first figure out what your vision is, what it is you want to see, what you don't like about what's going on right now, whether it, whatever the policy is, something that you are trying to change, something you're trying to resist, something you are trying to improve, and fight for that. Uh, even if it might at times make the state of Israel look bad. I think that wrong policies should be called out, especially if they're policies that conflict with our identity or with the values of the civilization we're trying to rebuild. Uh, So I think in general, I'm much more appreciative when I see organizations, especially Jewish organizations, taking hard positions on issues because Mm -hmm. then I feel like I know what I'm fighting for. If I join this organization, I know what I'm fighting for. However, if an organization is merely educational, like meaning if the purpose of this organization is to educate people more on their identity, for example. It's not an activist organization, it's an educational organization, and obviously there's overlap in, you know, all of the time, that I think it might be legitimate to take a step back and provide students with space to figure out what they believe and what they'd like to fight for. But the moment it becomes an activist group on any level, I think that you, know, you need to take positions, especially when these are the issues that are confronting the Jewish people. And also I think activism educates. Like... When I got started in all this back in the day, I really began with this idea that the international community is trying to impose the partition of our homeland 
and I need to resist it. Like, that's how I got involved. And if I wasn't fighting for that, or if I wasn't fighting against that, if I wasn't fighting against the division of my homeland, if I wasn't fighting against a two-state solution, I don't know if I would have ended up going as deep as I did and making the choices in life that I made. Because I had something, like, really, really tangible to fight for. Like, I knew where I come from, you know, you're, you're 15, 16 years old, you know if somebody offers you peace in exchange for your shoes or your money or your jacket, the answer is no. It's an issue of honor, just like an issue of self-respect. So when I heard that the Jewish state was considering or being forced to, being coerced to, a compromise on part of its territory, part of the Jewish people's homeland, that was just like a no-brainer. I have to fight this. Like, first of all, I'm embarrassed that the state of Israel would even consider such a thing. And second, I have to fight this. So I'm always appreciative of activist movements that take hard stances, especially if they're hard stances against a two-state solution. But I appreciate that you know, a lot of your work was actually educational and entry-level and just trying to like, get people in and get people passionate. I'm just questioning whether or not some of them would have become more passionate and quicker and deeper had there been like a hard goal to fight for or to fight against, while some would have, of course, left. I mean, that's always a choice that we make when we're you know, you have a class with the 20 people, you know, and you want, you want to have the biggest impact you can have. So the question, and I think this is a question that the organized Jewish community has all the time, like, do you just keep the message as bland, as vanilla, as moderate as possible, and try to just keep them all there so nobody, like, gets offended and leaves? Or do you say, I want to really, really, really inspire half the room while turning off the other half and I'll never see them again? So in response to that, I would say I completely agree with your premise that the vast majority, if not almost all, of the pro-Israel groups out there, especially those on campus, mm -hmm. uh, seek to support Israel and not be players on the field. They're fans and not players. Um, I do want to bring up a point that, first of all, there are many issues facing the Jewish world, whether that be in the diaspora or at home. Mm -hmm. uh, at home, there's the issue of we need to find a collective vision and to figure out what is the next step of our Jewish history as a whole uniting all the different tribes that have spread throughout the world and also come back. And there are also issues outside of Israel, like assimilation, mm -hmm. like anti-Semitism, that a lot of people inside of Israel don't experience and are detached from and don't realize how big they are. So if we look before the Holocaust, right, there were people that were Zionist Jews, and there were, Zionist, there were Jews that were not Zionists, right? There was support for Israel, it created a Shinnah state, and there wasn't support. Right. However, when the Holocaust started, there was a bigger issue to deal with right now. It doesn't matter if you're right or left, secular or religious, you got together in order to fight for the fight that you had right in front of you that was more important. And so that's kind of how we see it on campus. As an individual and on my own time and in my own way, I fight to support a solution in Israel that is first of all one state and also uh, achieves the aspirations of all the individuals living there uh, and also solves the injustices that all individuals experience there. However, on college campus, that is not the fight that is taking place. The fight that is taking place is, who are the Jews? Why do they have a right to exist? Are they even a people? And first and foremost, before even being able to communicate that message to the rest of the campus, being able to strengthen your own base. If you go into war and you just place people into those wars, they're not an organized army. They don't know how to fight. So same thing in an ideological front. In an ideological front, if you come to college campuses, the Jewish students are not united, are not trained, don't know who they are. And if they do, they definitely don't know how to express it. So our job on campus was basically three things. It was very clear. The first is to empower. Every single week, we had a, a course on 
uh, empowering, teaching Jews how to talk to the left, how to talk to the right, how to know about your history, how to learn uh, things and create coalitions with other minority groups, how to learn about other issues that are relevant to what we're doing. All these conversations that were not happening. The second part was to narrate the story of Israel. We didn't want the anti-Israel group to talk about Israel rights and our struggles and our narrative and our story and what we're going through. The same way a black group wouldn't want the KKK group to narrate their story. The same way a women's rights group would not want the misogynist male group to narrate their story. So it's our responsibility to share the story of Israel, of course, in the language that our audience understands. So that's not in the language of accomplishments like you would say the previous generation spoken, but in the language of justice. The Jewish people are 4,000 year old people that come from the native land, that revived their civilization, that brought back their language, and also kicked out the British from their land, which are a white colonial nation from Europe. Right? Using language that resonates with our generation to narrate our story. And the third element of what we were doing is to destroy every single anti-Israel group that existed or anti-Semitic group that existed. And the way that they were succeeding is using the in intersectionality uh, agenda where they would how, go... How do you understand intersectionality? I'm curious how you see that. Well, there's, there's one way of understanding it in theory and there's one way of understanding it in practice. I would prefer to talk about it in practice because the way that the anti-Israel students were using it on campus is they were going to every single minority group on campus. The black student, the gay student, the Hispanic student, Native American student, women student group, and they would basically find a way to relate to them and tell them, oh, you suffer from police brutality, black community, well, we suffer from IDF brutality, we're the same, and go even further in telling them, oh, not only do we suffer from the same thing, but actually the IDF trains the New York State Police Department to kill black people. And Native Americans, some white colonialists stole your land. Well, the Jews are a bunch of fake white people that converted to Judaism in order to steal our land. And gay people, you don't have equal rights. We don't have equal rights. Women, you don't have equal pay. We don't have equal pay. Mexico, you have a border. We have a border wall. And this is basically the same strategy that probably every anti-Semite in history, including Hitler, used to rally up their population to hate the Jews. How did Hitler do it? He found the common suffering that the German people were going through, which was the economic problems, and they said, this is because of the Jews. They're doing the same thing. They're going to every single one of these groups. They're finding their source of suffering and saying, this is because of Israel slash the Jewish people. And that's how they get everyone to come to the conclusion that the biggest problem in the world, if not one of the biggest, is the existence of Israel. And so it was our responsibility, one, to expose what they were doing, and also to expose that they're not a pro-Palestinian group. Because when it comes to Palestinian rights, they what, never... What group are we talking about? I'm talking about SJP and you know JVP, which are basically token Jews of SJP. They just follow them around and do whatever uh, SJP does. And you don't, think that these you don't think these groups genuinely care about Palestinians? I, or, or are trying to tell the story of the Palestinians? No. Trying to give voice to the Palestinian narrative as it exists in the minds and experiences, lived experiences of real Palestinians? I think this is where me and you may disagree on it, okay. um, and that's completely fine. But from my experience, and I've experienced many campuses as of you, um, they are actually stealing the space of real Palestinians and real Palestinian activists and allies to actually have those conversations. Of course, many individuals, I mean, at the end of the day, when you come to college, you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you're, you're not yet mature, you don't really know what you, you're coming into and you're part of this whole movement. You might think from the beginning, this is like where it is that I need to support Palestinians. But at the end of the day, every single event that SJP is doing is all created to destroy Israel. Furthermore, anytime Palestinians are suffering, whether it's dying by the thousands in Syria or in the refugee camps by the hundreds of thousands or without uh, totally equal rights in Jordan or even suffering on the border of Gaza and Egypt, they never talk about them. They only talk about Palestinian suffering, taken out of context, cherry-picked and used only when used against Israel. And furthermore, I think 
uh, what really is showing and telling of what their agendas are, are is their anti-normalization policy. Right? If a real activist, someone who cares about their people's future, understands the situation on the ground that the Jewish people aren't going to disappear, the Palestinians aren't going to disappear, so in order to move forward, we have to find a way to come together and to create a reality that works for both then these individuals will want to speak to the Zionist activist or the pro-Israel activist like an individual like myself on college campus to make me understand what they're going through, to build a relationship together, to try and work something out. But their anti-normalization policy states that we do not discuss or engage with anyone that's a Zionist. And my belief as to why they do that is because their main objective is to speak to everyone else and not the Jews to get everyone else to hate the Jews. And so I do believe that Palestinians amongst SJP and even Jews in JVP truly want to help the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. However, those individuals, after I do get to speak to them, they realize that SJP is just a front to destroy Israel. So I call it an anti-Israel group. I don't call it a pro-Palestinian group. Right, so when you engage, like I know now you're putting out these videos of you yeah. engaging with people on the left, people in SJP, people in JVP perhaps. The goal is to get them to understand that those organizations have agendas that are not in the interest of Palestinians? Well, it really depends on the conversation. I can give you an example of mm -hmm. a video that I haven't yet put out. Um, I was at UCLA and we were... I was helping the Hebrew Liberation Week uh, table of the SSI over there, and at the same time they had done an SJP conference that had stormed and lifted up a sign saying Jews indigenous to Judea. Um, and I was outside, and this individual Palestinian comes up to me. Now, he grew up in the U.S., but his parents uh, uh, had left the British Mandate of Palestine before even 1948. And he told me that he criticized a lot of what Israel does, and I asked him to clarify what that meant, and a lot of things he was... Uh, factually inaccurate on. However, that's the media that was presented and we had a very reasonable conversation. And after he saw that I actually truly cared about the Palestinian and also discussed the suffering that they were going through and also recognized that... How much of Palestinian suffering do you think is attributed to Israeli policies? It depends 80%? What, it, I, I would not be able to give you a number, but what I will, say, what I will say is that the Israeli state, the Israeli people, the Israeli government is much stronger than the Palestinians and thus have a greater responsibility to change the status quo and what is happening now. Okay. So, uh, uh, so just to finish off the point, once he heard that, he opened up and said, listen, I started off in SJP and now I completely rejected because I realized that they were not focusing on helping the Palestinians. And this is coming from a Palestinian himself. They were focusing on using my suffering, mm -hmm. my people's suffering to attack Israel. Okay. And this is an individual that came to that realization without even speaking to me. Right, so I, I want to address a couple of things you said because, as you know, and probably listeners know, I do engage with people in SJP and yes. JVP and other pro-Palestinian organizations. First of all, I, when it comes to normalization or anti-normalization, I don't see any reason why a Palestinian student or a student activist fighting for Palestinian rights should want to normalize with you, should want to talk to you. So should we not want to normalize with them? I lost four friends and, and one more. Perhaps not. Perhaps not. I mean, I have a goal. When I speak to a Palestinian activist, I have a very specific goal. Mm -hmm. I am trying to reveal the intersection between our oppressions and liberation. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes somebody on that side will snicker when you say Jewish oppression or Jewish liberation because it sounds so crazy to a Palestinian who has experienced himself living under our heal for so long to even like contemplate what, Jewish oppression, Jewish liberation, liberation from what? It sounds bizarre. It just like sounds bizarre and it, and, and it makes no sense to them. Uh, I believe that 
Jewish liberation and Palestinian liberation are very much intertwined at this point. Mm-hmm. I don't think that one people can achieve liberation without the other. Agreed. I think in many ways Palestinians are victims of a uh, Jewish identity crisis. Um, I would say that, you know, like just for example, in 1967 we returned to the cradle of Jewish civilization. And we knew that these are the lands we had been like dreaming of and hoping to return to for thousands of years. Yet, on the other hand, the Americans and Europeans didn't want us there. Mm-hmm. Yet, on the other hand, we needed those mountains to defend our most densely populated areas. Yet, on the other hand, um, there are all these non-Jews there. What are we going to do with them? Give them citizenship, not give them citizenship? We didn't know what we were doing with these places. Mm-hmm. And that's an identity crisis. And as a result, we've done like nothing and everything for the last 52 years and pretended we're moving towards certain solutions, but really moving towards other solutions and really not doing anything. And they don't get it. Because we say one thing, we commit to something, we pretend something, and then we are revealed as having been dishonest and doing things that actually um, not only go ag- not only negate the policies that we say we're moving towards, but even intensify the oppression they're experiencing. When you say we, you mean the Israeli I mean, government? Israel. Yeah, Israel as an entity. Um, but what, what were their leadership doing at the same time? Because I definitely do agree that we have not no, found I think, anything. Well, we've bef- kind of been they didn't really have, government. meaning in 1967, they didn't really have a leadership to speak of. Or at least not not uh, like centralized leadership. They didn't have a leadership I mean, until the PLO was created in '64. That wasn't their leadership. That was just a, an organization that functioned. That wasn't like their leadership. Their, it became their leadership in the Oslo years. Right, but it was still seen as their ideological leadership. I would make that by some, perhaps. I don't know. I mean, that, that's a good question. It's a question for Palestinians who lived at that time. Mm-hmm. But I think that you know. I, what I do is not normalization. When I speak to Palestinians, or when Palestinians speak to me, I don't think it. it goes and falls into the category of normalization because we're actually addressing real issues and ways to get past them. Like we're addressing the oppression. It's not like I can understand. I'm just saying I can understand why a Palestinian student or a pro-Palestinian student on a university campus would not want to talk to somebody from the pro-Israel community as if it's all good and we just have a misunderstanding. No, we don't have a misunderstanding. Like You are oppressing me on a daily basis. I have a military bureaucracy controlling every aspect of my life in the land that I lived in for generations before you showed up. There's nothing to talk about. I understand why they're not willing to normalize. And, and when you talk about narratives and selectively choosing facts... That's to, kind of... That narrative. However, I right. understand it, that that's it, their perspective. It, it, I'd say all narratives, including the pro-Israel narrative, mm-hmm. the pro-Palestinian narrative, are really just a collection of facts that are selectively chosen and contextualized okay. within a worldview. Like, I don't think that we have all the facts. I don't think they have all the facts. I think the Kedush Baruch Hu has all the facts. I think, like, Hashem has all the facts, and He has the big capital T truth, and we all have our little truths that have lowercase t's, and I think the more inclusive we can be of other people's truths, the closer we get to that divine truth. I agree with the yeah. last part, yes. Yeah, and I think that there's things that are saying that are true, and the things that we're saying that are true. I'll give you an example. And there's a lot of things that they're saying that isn't true, and that purposely Well, we're, well we're both saying things that aren't true when we talk about the other. I think we both sound really, really ignorant when we talk about each other. When we're talking about ourselves, I think for the most part, like our own identities, our own experiences, we're telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you an example. You know, about 11 years ago, 2008, I was running Israel Liberation Week at UC Berkeley, 
and there was a SJP student I was talking to, and we were kind of arguing uh, over 1948, and she kept shouting at me the number of Palestinian communities that were destroyed in that war. Mm-hmm. And I kept trying to make the point that we were both victims of the British who had actually armed, trained, and led the Jordanian and Egyptian militaries in that war, meaning the British were still very actively involved in that war on a combat level. And we're like shouting past each other, like she's not getting what I'm saying, and I'm not, I mean, I'm hearing what she's saying, but not understanding the relevance to what I'm trying to say. And at a certain point, she does like kind of listen to me, and she hears me talking about Egypt, and she's just like, why are you talking about Egypt? What does Egypt have to do with that war? Like, it just made no sense to her that I'm trying to connect Egypt to 1948. And I, of course, thought this young woman is an idiot because how could she not know that Egypt was one of the major militaries participating in that war to the point that they took territory from us. And um, I dismissed her as like somebody not worth speaking to anymore. I walked away and I realized much, much, much later that I didn't know how many Palestinian communities were destroyed in 1948. Most people working for pro-Israel organizations don't know how many Palestinian communities were destroyed in 1948. People working for AIPAC don't know it. Uh, Most Israelis don't know it, Mm -hmm. if you ask them that question. And I realized that what she was saying could be true, and what I'm saying could be true, but these just aren't the facts that are relevant to our stories. Meaning, how many Palestinian communities were destroyed in 1948 is not really relevant to the story the Jewish people tell ourselves about that war. Because for us, that war was about how many Arab armies we had to beat back to survive. Now, for them, it's about the Nakba. For them, it's about how many Palestinian communities were destroyed. That's their story. And what armies participated in that war are irrelevant. So it's not that she's lying or I'm lying. We're just taking the facts that fit with our stories and support our agendas. But I don't think any Israel activist would say that no Palestinian communities were destroyed, whereas they would... No, but they, it's, not like, it's still peripheral information. Sure, but like the, the other narrative would say that no Palestinian, all Palestinians were removed forcefully, where mm-hmm. that's not true. Many of them left willingly, and they will not give the context as to there was a war that was initiated before those re- removal and those displacements happened. So you cannot blame the consequences of a war. Right, no, on it's, a it's not about. Again, my point is that there are millions of true facts Absolutely. that we take and we put together the way we want. Right. We pl- we all play these games. Anybody who does any political work anywhere is playing this game. Now it doesn't mean people are liars. It means that's just the way the game is played. Yeah. I try, at least for my own self, at least for my own awareness and well-being, I try to be as conscious and aware as possible of the fact that, okay, this is a narrative, and a narrative could be true, mm-hmm. but there are other narratives too. And ultimately, for me, it's less about who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. For me, the issue is more what is the goal we're trying to achieve? Like, I'm very clear about the goal I want to see. I want to see the rebirth of Hebrew civilization in the land of Israel and for that civilization to be a light unto other nations mm-hmm. and to become a leader on the world stage and to actually bring humanity somewhere better. Now, I want that to happen. Um, I think we have to solve our conflict with the Palestinians in order for that to happen, and that makes solving our conflict with the Palestinians a goal of Jewish liberation. Absolutely. Right? I think that also freeing ourselves from the role of oppressor, I feel really, really uncomfortable in the role that we often occupy right now. I think that part of our identity crisis 
is that we have adopted these like kind of Western colonialist structures, especially in Judea and Samaria, mm -hmm. where the Jews in Judea are not the Americans in Afghanistan, but we're behaving like we are. Mm -hmm. We're actually enforcing a military occupation on a civilian population in our land. Right? If we really believe it's our land, we won't behave like occupiers, we'll behave like natives. And it's not just saying we're natives or saying we're indigenous, it's not a Hasbara talking point, it's actually internalizing that identity and being it. That's part of decolonizing mm -hmm. Jewish identity to actually say we are going to relate to them not as like lambs having to protect ourselves from wolves and putting up all these like colonial structures and walls and checkpoints and guns and bulletproof this and that. No. If I have a problem with somebody, we'll handle it. But I'm going to try to create the relationship dynamics where there are no problems. And that means being strong enough to handle anybody who threatens you while not oppressing anybody needlessly. I think you touched on something very important mm -hmm. in Israeli society that's a problem is short-term thinking. Yeah. That people try and find solutions that fix a problem in the short term, mm -hmm. sort of putting no, like that's a, a band-aid on a wound that needs surgery rather than fixing something on the long term. Because we know that the checkpoints and the walls, although I'm completely against them, were created and decreased terrorism by, what, 90%? Well, I would argue no. I would argue that the wall did not do that. I think that's a myth okay. that's perpetrated by people who want to see a two-state solution. Well, as someone who served in the army... I, I served in the army that time. Of course. But like, when they, before, like while they're putting up the wall. So would you say that every single day Israel, or not every single day, almost every single day Israel finds people in those checkpoints that were planning to come into Israel and commit not to terror? I'm saying that the wall is still not finished and there's still people who get across all the time. Absolutely. Okay, first of all. Second of all, the wall is not what stopped the terrorism of the Second Intifada. There are two things that stopped the terrorism of the Second Intifada. Number one was Operation Defensive Shield, where Israeli soldiers for the first time in about a decade were back on the streets of Jenin and Tokarem and Ramallah and Shechem and uh, setting up an intelligence network and uh, units that are responsible for catching combatants but when they're on their way to commit an act of terror were catching them in their communities, not at the wall. But if the media were to say that, if the media were to tell the Israeli public that the terrorism stopped because Jewish soldiers, there's an Israeli presence in Palestinian cities, most Israelis would oppose getting out. But if you tell the Israeli public that the terrorism stopped because we built up a big wall and they're on the other side and we're on this side, most Israelis will support division of the land. Because most Israelis, unfortunately, have been so hyper-westernized over the last two, three decades that they care more about personal security than they do about their homeland. So it's all about the story the media wants to tell to get people to support the policies that it wants to promote. Uh, also, the other thing that really put an end to the Intifada was Hamas's fatwa against suicide bombings. Hamas issued a fatwa against suicide bombings because we just kept killing their leaders, and we just didn't stop until they issued a fatwa against mm -hmm. suicide bombings. So I think that's what really put down the intifada, and the wall was kind of given the credit in, in order to justify a solution, or validate a solution, or restore faith in a solution that most Israelis had lost their faith in. I'm going to say that, I'm, like I said before, I'm completely against the wall. Mm -hmm. um, however, I do think that a lot of terrorism has been caught because, or prevented, because of the wall and because of checkpoints. Now, that doesn't mean it needs to continue to exist. It doesn't mean that it creates a, a system where there's justice experience. There's definitely injustice that is experienced because of it. People don't have access to movement. Uh, people feel controlled. I think the role that the IDF should play in their land is to protect the people of the land, not to control them. 
So I absolutely agree that these things should be removed and changed and evolved. But I think the problem is that we constantly in Israel think short term, what can we do to fix this issue now rather than what do we need to do now that changes our future in 50, 100 years? Okay. We're going to have to wrap up. I just wanted to give a quick plug because I know you're running for the uh, World Zionist Congress yes. with Levi and Dorenu and the Vision Movement. And uh, we're going to tell listeners how they can support you and support me and support all of us and uh, help us make a real change in the World Zionist Congress, inspire young people to see themselves as actual characters in Jewish history, formulating the next goals of Jewish liberation, figuring out what Jewish liberation looks like in the 21st century after the success of Zionism. Listeners should know how they can support us and how they can help send people like you and people like me to the World Zionist Congress to make a real difference. Rudy, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. All right, this is Yuda Cohen on the Next Stage podcast, Brit Chazon Vision Magazine. You can check out the show notes at visionmag.org backslash the next stage 11. <laughs>